Amen. You may be seated. So come back with me now to the letter of James. Today's particular text is printed there on page, I think, 12 in your bulletin. Let's hear again these opening verses, this powerful little letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you, Lord, to just move by your spirit now as we hear these powerful words of hope and truth. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So I want to actually just kind of camp on verses 5 through 8 today. And um, so, on, you know, on the, on the original Easter morning, the, the writer of this letter was probably somewhere in Jerusalem sleeping uh, with no idea how, how his world was about to just be turned upside down. Um, James, the writer, he was, from infancy, he had been raised in the religion of Judaism by a family that took this seriously. You know, we often talk in Christianity about we've got Easter and Christmas worshipers, right? And then there's like the serious Christians that are there every Sunday. Well, James and his family in Judaism, they were serious. They actually really believed God's promise to Abraham that from his family and through a particular Messiah that was going to come from his family, God was going to save the human race. God was going to give blessing to all the families and nations of the earth. Now, old Father Adam, you know, he plunged us into a a real wreck, didn't he? We are cursed under God's curse, under God's wrath because of our sin. And the promise to Abraham was, through the Messiah that's going to come from you, I'm going to reverse that curse. I'm going to give blessing to all the nations of the earth. I'm going to give my favor to the whole human race. And James believed that. He and his family took that extremely seriously. They were waiting for that. And that gave James some problems with his brother. A man named Jesus, a kind of maverick rabbi who was constantly... Now, think about how you would see this as a, as a committed Jew of the, in the time. Jesus would just challenge the traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes and the rulers of Israel. He, he, he claimed that he was the true interpreter of the Torah of Moses and the prophets. He took messianic titles to himself, like son of David and son of God, and he even said really crazy things like, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if any of you know anything about, you know, Jewish history, you know, I am, like that's God. He's basically saying, I am the I am. This did not sit well with the Jews at all. It didn't sit well with James, honestly. 
And then, of course, Jesus is executed. And you can imagine how that would have torn James up as a brother, but you really do think maybe he kind of deserves it, possibly, (laughs) for his blasphemies. And then, probably not too many days after Jesus was crucified, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, here I am, resurrected, alive from the dead. And that's when James, like his whole world turned upside down because he realized everything God said to Abraham is true, and this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the one we've been waiting for, this one I've called brother all my life. The kingdom of God is here. The latter days are here. The long-awaited new creation, the restoration of all things, it's now, it's going to be through Jesus. And now he's writing, some years, you know, probably a few years on, he's writing now as a pastor to the scattered Jewish followers of Jesus, because it didn't go well for them in, in Jerusalem. Very much like their master, their Messiah, they are hunted by the powerful rulers of the nation. And James writes to them, and he says something, it's kind of a code phrase, but it's very powerful. He writes to these scattered followers of Jesus, and he says, I'm writing to you, verse 1, do you see it? You're the 12 tribes. You're the 12 tribes. God's plan for Abraham's family is going to be fulfilled in you. God's whole work of restoring the human race, it's going to come through you guys. You're the ones out there preaching the true Messiah. That's the hope of the world. You're the 12 tribes. You are, he says later in the chapter, he says, you're the first fruits, the first sheaves of this harvest of the world. You're the nucleus of this new creation. And, you know, you've got to think about these poor people. They've been displaced from their homes. They, I mean, you could literally die for being a follower of Jesus. This is a really glorious thing to hear. We're the 12 tribes. But on the ground, man, this is just costly. Jesus talked before he died about the world. He said, the world hates me. And he told his disciples before he even went to the cross, the world's going to hate you. And by the world, what was he talking about? Well, he was talking about the powers of his time, some of them political powers like Rome, some of them religious powers like the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin that ruled the nation. But there were these powers, and, and you guys know what this is like. We've kind of been watching stuff like this even in recent history here in the United States. Powers don't like being challenged. Pow- the powers of that time, they did not, their sovereignty and their, their system of value was, was, it was threatened by Jesus. You know, if you're a Caesar, you don't want someone showing up and saying, actually, I'm the king of the Jews. Actually, I'm Kurios. I'm Lord. That was Caesar's title. And if you're in the, you know, you're the Jewish council at the time, you don't want somebody showing up and saying, actually, I'm the I am. I'm God. I'm the Messiah. All of you big shots need to start worshiping me. That, that did not go well. And the world hated Jesus, and it hates these readers. And so, as we saw last week, James encourages them early on, and he says, look, you know, God's taken you somewhere through all this suffering. These sufferings are a road, and at the end of that road, God, having given you, having given you this identity as his new Israel, he's going to give you full integrity in that identity. He's, gonna, he's basically going to make you guys, as you suffer, he's going to bring you to a place where you've reached the full human potential that the Torah envisioned. You know, the Torah envisioned this people of God in the world. They just, with their whole hearts, they love God. With their whole hearts, they love their neighbor, even the poorest and most marginalized. And what what James is saying is, in verses two through four, he says, God is 
You believe in Israel's God. You believe in Israel's Messiah. His name is Jesus. But that faith is being tested. It's being tested a lot because you get killed for believing that, and you could suffer a lot for believing that. But God's making your faith steadfast, making it like rock-ribbed and solid. And as God works that iron faith in your hearts, you're going to grow into full maturity. You're going to grow into that wholehearted Israel, loving God and loving everything he loves. And that's the encouragement early on. But you know, and this is what I've been thinking about all week, getting ready for this. I think we need to be honest. It's great to hear that. Thank you, James. But whether you're the first fruits, this, these early readers, or whether you're 21st century fruits like us, as God is doing this whole new creation thing, the reality is what James is saying here, it's just a lot to hold on to in everyday life, especially when things are really, really hard. And that brings us to verse 5, where James says, you know, some of you are going to lack wisdom. And I want to talk for a minute about our need for wisdom. Because I I mean, I'm, I'm watching your faces as I preach, and you know, I can tell even this stuff, you know, it's just, it's great to hear about, and you can kind of think about the fact that God is doing this new creation, and we're a part of it, and God's going to, you know, work in saving the world through, through us and all of his people. But man, in the day-to-day of life, you know, the more I hear about God's big plan through Jesus, whether you think about that on the macro scale of he's literally going to save his whole world, you know, he's going to put all things back together, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, on that macro scale, or whether I think about the more micro scale, that God actually plans for me to become perfect and complete, mature, mature, whole. As I think about God's plan, you know, the more I think about it, the more I notice a problem in me, not with God, but a problem with me. And that is, especially when things are hard in my life and I'm going through trials, I just have a hard time staying connected to that big plan. I do. I know you guys don't think pastors struggle with this. You have no idea. And I know you know what it's like. I have a hard time staying connected to that big plan in the day-to-day of life. You know, you can talk, and I'll come, I'll come and I listen to my preaching too. You know, I, I, I sort of stand here, and I hear these words every week about who God is and what God is doing, and, you know, my identity in that, and the part I've got to play in that, and the destiny I've got, and all that that God's doing. It's great stuff. And then, you know, I go out of here, and usually I don't even get through the car ride home. (laughs) And it just feels very far away from where I actually do life. You know, if God gives me a good week, I kind of forget about him. God gives me a bad week, I go to pieces. There are times, and I'm sure you can relate, there are times when all that gold of God's kingdom, it just doesn't shine for me. When God's got me in sufferings like Jesus, I'm not, you know, I'm not enduring the cross for the joy set beyond. I don't even see the joy. I'm just, I hate the cross. There are even times, to be honest, when I look around in the way of absolute fools who don't know anything about God, don't worship him, don't serve him, their life looks better. It looks easier. And what I find myself lacking as I think about that big plan and then feel my disconnect from it, what I find myself lacking, the Bible calls wisdom. It is wisdom I lack. You could probably do worse than defining wisdom as your internal connection to God and what he's doing. God is doing things. God is who he is, and he's doing what he's doing. But my internal connection to that, my my awareness of that, I, I think of it as being like a tuning fork. And when God plays his music, my fork resonates with the music. You know, I, I'm, when my heart is tuned to God's kingdom. Truth is, it's not always. There are times when I pick up the Bible and I, I, I remember all this big stuff, and then I go out of my study and I face something in my household and my tuning fork's like, doink. 
That's about the level of tune. It's like, doink. I, there's, there's no resonance. I, it's like I am out of that, you know, the glory cloud where I get my sermons ready, and I'm back in the real world, and it's just my heart is not, is not connected to God's kingdom. My will is not connected to God's plan. My strength is not connected to God's work. But that's what wisdom is. It is your heart, your will, your strength, your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength connected to God and what he is doing. Wisdom is actually just seeing and acting in the world the way it really is. We've all got a sense of kind of, you know, how the world is and we respond accordingly. Well, wisdom is understanding the world as it actually is. This is God. This is what he's doing. That's reality. And wisdom is just seeing it and acting as if that's true. And I find myself, as God brings things into my everyday life, I find myself saying, yes, yes, Lord, I know the gospel. My, you're my father. You're my king. You're doing this big thing, this new creation, the church, etc., the Holy Spirit. But God, what about this? What about this parenting issue? I mean, really, what good does all that do with this parenting issue? What good does all that do if I'm having this thing with a friend that's just hard? If I've got a coworker who's just really, you know, really, really difficult, you know, what if... How about, you know, how about stupid things? Like, how about the fact that I have to spend hours on the phone with this government agency that keeps sending me paperwork for something I didn't sign up for? I don't even, it takes hours I don't have. Frustrations of life. And I'm like, okay, yeah, the big picture, the new creation, but what about this? And it helps me as I think about this. It helps me understand why Paul prays for the Christians in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1. And notice the language of his prayer. He says, we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, do you hear that? Paul says, I'm praying for you guys that God will give you spiritual wisdom and understanding so you'll walk worthy of him. That's what we really need. We need a Holy Spiritual, that is a Holy Spirit-given inward vision of the kingdom that doesn't die, that doesn't fade, where in the day-to-day of life, the Holy Spirit is enabling me to remember who my king is, what my king is doing, where I'm at in that whole thing that he's doing. That's the will of God. I need the Spirit to illuminate that me, illuminate that to me in a way that will then compel me to seek that kingdom. As I then walk out into the real world, the real stuff I face every day, who God is, what God is doing, my place in that, it compels me to seek the values that God values and the virtues of one who is a child of God. That's, it moves me when I have that internal spirit-given understanding or wisdom. And, and, and you know that when you've got that from the Holy Spirit, when God's doing that in your heart, it really doesn't matter what cost you face, what opposition you face, what obstacles or distractions you face, your, your heart is set. I mean, I, this has to be true because there are people who, who experience excruciating martyrdom because their heart is just set on Jesus. I will not deny Christ. It doesn't matter what you do to me. That is spiritual wisdom. I'm so sure of the reality of God. Take my head. Burn my body. Do, what you wor- do your worst. I know he'll raise me from the dead, and I'm just, I, my heart is fixed. That's That's the wisdom Paul's talking about. And if you think about that wisdom growing in someone's life, that wisdom is really what it means to be perfect and complete, as Paul put it back in verse 4. That's maturity. That's wholeness. When every detail of your life 
on the, you know, in the, on the job site, in school, in your home life, in your most secret moments when you're alone, when every single thing in your life is completely oriented to God's presence with you and God's purposes in the world. And that orientation of your entire life toward God, it moves you to worship and to work for him, to, to serve him, to love him, to, to contemplate his glory, to, to cultivate his world, to celebrate his goodness. When that's what's going on, you're mature. That's real Christianity from the inside out. And James makes it very clear, that is a gift of God. That is something the Holy Spirit does. If you lack wisdom, you know, you find yourself not so strong in faith sometimes, not certainly mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You lack wisdom, then just ask God. He has to give it to you. And that brings us to the second thing I want to talk about, which is the prayer of faith. So there's this, you know, there's this need for wisdom. And then there's this prayer of faith. And James says, if you lack wisdom, if it's just not, you know, it's not coming together for you, you're not connected in day-to-day life, he says two things. And the first thing he says makes total sense. He says, you need God to do something. That makes sense. I'm lacking in wisdom. I'm not connected. I can't really connect myself easily. I can seek it, but God has to give me that connection. You need God to do something is the first thing he says, and that makes sense. You know, if you're in a, if you're in a and some of you are, man, I, I, this is what's hard about being a pastor sometimes, I'll be honest, is you have to, you have to talk to people about God's promises to them when, you, when you, you know something, what they're actually enduring. And sometimes it takes your breath away a little bit. Like, you have to tell people, you know, it isn't hopeless. God is here. God has purposes. And you know they're thinking, Pastor, come on, what about this? And you have to pray with them that God will give them the wisdom. And that's, you have God, we need God to do something. You need to ask God because only God can give this to you. If you're in the crucible of trials, you know, a terminal illness, a marriage is coming apart, major family conflict, you've lost your job, or you're potentially, you know, you imagine that you've, you know, lost, death has taken a loved one, and you realize, I lack wisdom. I, I am not whole. I, I am not connected. I'm not totally tuned into God's reality and his kingdom, and I'm not living accordingly. Maybe temptation with, with you know, sin is tempting you, and you're just in this crucible, and you're, you just realize, I'm, I lack wisdom. Where are you going to go with that lack? Where are you going to turn but to God? You can't generate that on your own. And James says, ask God. And then I want you to notice what he says. He will give it to you. He will give it to you. He will enable you to see your situation, whatever it is. And remember, God is present. God has purposes. God is here. God is working. God will open your heart then in the comfort that comes in knowing God is present and God is working. He will then enable you to see what's the next step. What's the next thing to do? What is the will of God for just the next thing? And then he'll give you the power to do it. Ask God for this wisdom. He will give it to you because that's who he is. Do you notice this? He is this God. And we need to hear this because what I'm amazed, I'm amazed at myself. When you're lacking in wisdom and you're not really feeling connected to God and you realize how not connected, I mean, I've had times when, honestly, I am in sin. (laughs) I'm doing stuff I know I should not be doing. I'm doing it again. I've done it a lot. I'm back in some of the same old ruts. I'm not connected. I'm not dialed into God. I'm living for myself. I'm just making a wreck of relationships around me or whatever it might be. And I'm in that place. You know who I don't want to talk to? I don't want to talk to God because I'm ashamed. And James says, 
when you lack wisdom, you're not connected. You ask God because he's this God. In, in, in the Greek, it's actually a very strong phrase. He's the giving God. That's the God he is. He's a God who gives bountifully. He gives generously. Oh, and by the way, he doesn't condemn you. He doesn't reproach you. He doesn't look at you and say, how stupid can you be? Again, Ben Miller? For real, Ben Miller? He doesn't reproach. He's the God who gives generously to all without reproach. He will give you the wisdom. He's that kind of father. There's no question of a favorable answer to this prayer. He is your father. Jesus said, listen, people, you're sinners. You can figure out this much. If your son asks you for a loaf of bread, you don't give him a, a, a stone. If he asks you for a fish, you don't give him a snake. And if you being evil have that much love for your children, do you not think your father in heaven will give good things to those who ask him? If, you don't, if you're not connected, if you're a mess, it isn't just your circumstances, it's you. You're lacking You ask him, he will give you the gift of wisdom. You will receive it. It might be slow, but it'll be sure. You need God to do something, and he will do it. He will give you wisdom. But the second thing James says in this prayer of faith, he says, you need God to do something. Ask God. The second thing he says, I think, is not so expected. He also says in verse 6, God wants you to do something. You ask God, he'll give you wisdom. God wants you to do something, and that it's this. You ask God in faith with no doubting. Do not doubt when you ask, or you won't receive. Now, when I first read that, it initially sounds like James is taking back what he just gave. I mean, here I am, I'm a mess. And he's pointed me to God, and that's good. I need someone to point me to God. But now it sounds like he's telling me that if I'm going to get anything from God, it actually depends on me that I have to qualify in some way for this help. And, of course, the whole reason I need help is because I don't qualify. So it sounds like James has just undone his promise God will give you because now you've got to sort of come to God with this thing called asking in faith with no doubting. And it sounds like my father's generosity now depends on me getting my act together, which that's not a very promising thing. Is that what James is doing? Absolutely not. And, and it, I want to just say real quickly something about faith. When you hear the Bible talk about faith, ask in faith. Live in faith. Walk by faith. Let's remember something about faith. Faith, as the Bible talks about it, is always you looking away from yourself to God. (laughs) People get very mixed up about this. Faith, by definition, as the Bible talks about it, is extrospective. You know, there's introspective looking within. Faith is extrospective. By definition, biblical faith is I'm looking away from myself in really a kind of desperation to God. And I meet so many Christians that are so hung up on whether they've got enough faith or whether they've got the right kind of faith. I remember as a teenager wrestling with this as I grew up in the church, like always wondering, do I have the right kind of faith? You know, is it strong enough faith? You know, if if your faith is thinking about your faith, your faith is not biblical faith, (laughs) Faith, biblical faith isn't thinking about its faith. Biblical faith is busy thinking not about whether it has enough faith. Biblical faith is busy thinking about the fact that it has God. That's biblical faith. So James says, as you pray, turn away from yourself and your situation to God as he has revealed himself to you and, and, and to his church and to the world. Turn to God. Ask in faith. Look away. Look to God. Quit thinking about yourself. Think about God. 
Think about what he's revealed about himself and plant yourself on his promise that he is the only one who can meet your need. That's what it means that he's God and he wants to meet your need. That's what he mean, it means that he's your father. Turn away from yourself and this situation and how big it seems to you. Let God kind of shrink it down to size in the light of who he is. He alone can help me because he's God. He alone desires to help me because he's my father. And if you don't believe that, what does Easter even mean? If you don't believe that, we stand, you know, we we romanticize this stuff in the church. The empty tomb means God has definitively answered your sin and everything that's trying to destroy you, including death itself. He has definitively, eternally answered it and set you free and made you his own. So remember God as you pray. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I can never read this without weeping. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? I believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, in whom I so trust as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and further, that whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears, he will turn to my good, for he is able to do it, being almighty God, and willing also, being a faithful father. Remember that when you pray, James says. The alternative to that faith, that prayer of faith, is doubting. Now let me tell you two things that doubting here is not. When James talks about doubting God, he is not talking, first of all, about a failure to claim what God has not promised. There is a poison in the church today called the prosperity gospel that keeps telling people that God has promised things God has not promised, and then torments people because they don't believe God enough to get the things God has not promised. And so I have dear friends who have prayed for healing of illnesses, and they think that they have managed to fail God and not have enough faith because God has not healed their illness. And I'm somewhat dumbfounded how to respond sometimes to this when I, I just have to say to them, you know, the reality is God never promised you that healing. To claim it is folly. Where God has not spoken, to say God has spoken is foolishness. It's not a lack of faith. It's a lack of promise. That's not the doubting he's talking about here. He's not saying, oh, I didn't, you know, I just didn't get that yacht and, and, you know, and, and that, you know, island paradise that I've been praying for, you know, and the Learjet. I mean, I'm a pastor after all. No. That's not doubting. That's not what he means. There's something else that he's not talking about here. When he says, ask with no doubting, he is not talking about the perplexity that real Christians have in hard times. To say to God, I do not understand, is not doubting. To say to God, I can't see God, I don't see how to square what is happening in my life with who you say you are and what you say you're doing. I don't know how to put it together. That's not doubting. That's perplexity. That's faith that's seeking understanding and hasn't got there yet. That's not what he's talking about. The doubting that he is talking about here is very simple. It is being a person with two minds. God in one ear, 
and the serpent in the other ear. You got to choose this day whom you will serve. That's what he's saying. In the background of this entire letter is the reversal of Genesis 3. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and he says very simply, is God really trustworthy? Saints, Jesus' people, are to trample the serpent's lies about God's truthfulness and his trustworthiness. You are to step on the head of that snake. Ask in faith without doubting. You cannot have God in one ear and the serpent in the other saying to you, is he really truthful? Is he really trustworthy? Or is he trying to screw you? Because that was the serpent's lie. You'd be like gods if God would let you eat that fruit. James says, you need to get that serpent and put a pitchfork in the head of that thing and listen to God without doubting. You know, all through the Bible and in our human experience, we can watch it every day. There are exactly two roads in this world. Everyone's on one of these two roads. You are either on a road toward God, toward life, toward wholeness, toward flourishing, toward order and beauty and joy, or you're on a road away from God toward disintegration and disorder and strife and distortion and instability and misery and death. And the fork in the road, the fork since Genesis 3 that divides those two roads from one another Divides those who are whole from those who are disintegrated. Divides the wise from the fools. Divides the planted in God from the unstable in all their ways. The fork in the road is this question. Is God trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Some of you need to answer that in the pew today. I'm not asking if you trust him. I'm asking, is he trustworthy? Your faith needs some work if you're anything like me. But who is God? That's the fork in the road since Genesis 3. Is God this God who gives generously without reproach? Is he, as James will talk in a few verses, is he the father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift just flows down? Is it true what the Bible says? None of those who trust in him will ever be ashamed. Is that true? That's the question. You know, James is such a skillful pastor. I mean, you just, I have nothing but respect. He, he's, his readers lack wisdom. He, and what has he done? He's just led them directly to what the Bible calls the beginning of wisdom. And what's the beginning of wisdom? To fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the simple conviction God is truthful. God is trust, trustworthy. If I have to kill my son and God has to raise him from the dead, I'll still put him on the altar because this God doesn't lie. That's the fear of the Lord. Though the lights of heaven fall, God is faithful. Though he slay me, I will trust him. That's the fear of the Lord. And James says, ask in faith. Turn away from yourself to God. To who he's revealed himself to be. Because he says, God's not going to respond favorably if you're going through the formalities of prayer from a heart that says, God, I don't really know if you're able to do this. I don't really know if you even want to do this. Don't let such a person suppose he's going to receive anything from the Lord. You've got the serpent in one ear and God in the other. You're a double-minded person. You are unstable in all your ways. You will not receive because God is not interested in hearing the formalities of prayer from a heart that doesn't even think he's willing and able. 
The story of Israel is a story of a very religious people going through all kinds of religious emotions, showing up for all kinds of religious worship services, doing all the religious trappings, and their hearts were far from God. They did not trust him. They did not wait for him. They did not believe in him. They did not rest in him. And the reality was they were seeking other gods to fill the lack that they saw in the, the true and living God. I can tell you my wife is not one bit interested in me going through the motions of getting her flowers and saying sweet things in her ear if my heart is pursuing elsewhere. And God is not interested in the people who come and sing hymns and pray prayers and go through motions. If your heart does not believe he is the God he's revealed himself to be, he is looking for a people. Maybe their lives are very messy, maybe not so religiously tidy, but they fear the Lord. They know he is the God he's revealed himself to be, and they are planting themselves on that and bearing fruit out of that. That is what God seeks. We have to be very clear about this. We have to be very, very kind of brutally honest with ourselves here. If I am ready to question God's trustworthiness, if I'm looking at my life and I'm saying, I don't think God can be trusted, if that is where my heart is, I need to be very, very clear about something. My heart is already in the grip of something I want more than God. When your heart is in a place where, if my heart's in a place where I say, if God was really faithful, he'd give me that. If God was really trustworthy, my life would look like that. If God really loved me, it would pan out like this. If God, if your promises were really worth anything, my life would shape up in this way. When, you are, when you're there, God, I can't trust you because you took my wife. I can't trust you because you took my child. I can't trust you because you took my job. I can't trust you because I'm sick. I can't trust you because I'm lonely. It, when your heart is already seeking something else than God. James will call this spiritual adultery in chapter 4. There's your treasure. When that grabs you more than the living God, there's your treasure, there's your heart, there's your lover. He'll later say, you adulterers and adulteresses, friendship with the powers and the values of this age, rather than the living God, it is enmity against God. When you're looking elsewhere for your identity, looking elsewhere for your security, looking elsewhere for your vitality and your prosperity, you're vacillating like a wave between God and some other love. And what happens if you find yourself in that place? Wow, man, I am seriously lacking in wisdom. I am a double-minded person. I'm unstable in all my ways. The solution is the same every time. Go back to the cross. Jesus was punished for that sin. Go back to the empty tomb. Your debt is paid. Go back to the love of God, the Father from whom every good and perfect gift beginning with free grace comes down. James says, you draw near to God. He will draw near to you. That is the promise of Easter. Amen. Settle us in your love, our God, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.